Colour 2 podcast is back after a successful first season for season two. I'm really looking forward to visiting new and exciting locations, seeking out colourists who have an interesting tale to tell. Ready to have some fun? If you look inside, you can see every possible colour. This episode, I'm talking to Kevin Shaw. Now, Kevin doesn't actually live in Beijing, in China. He lives in the UK. But why we were working there last year is a great opportunity to chat to him. How he got started, how he got involved in colour correction, in training to begin with. His thoughts on the best way to become a colourist. And also, he talks about the CSI that he is very passionately involved in. That's the Colourist Society International. Enjoy the podcast. Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Colour 2 podcast and I'm in Beijing. I'm with Kevin Shaw. Hello Kevin. Hello Warren. How are you doing? I'm very good. Now we're attempting to walk through a revolving door at our hotel which can be a little bit tricky plus we're tethered to uh, obviously this recording machine and uh, we're just about to hit the heat I think. 34 degrees last night. Yes, and we're just walking into a huge tour group. Uh, you've been to Beijing before, Kevin? Yeah, a few times. It's been a long time though. It's been about 10 years the last time I was here. Yeah, I was here in uh, in 06, and the thing I remember about it then, there was still lots of people on bicycles. And uh, it was crazily busy with bikes. It still is. There's a lot of these sort of council government bikes, but there's so many cars here now. It is crazy busy. So we're staying not far from uh, the Forbidden City, Temple of Heaven. Uh, We've been down to Tiananmen Square, so we can walk to quite a few places, which has been great. So what have you been doing here, Kevin? Well, we just finished the first Beijing ICA summit, really, the two of us here together. A little bit of a change of format, doing a five-day class instead of the usual two-day classes. And it's amazing. Fantastic selection of people. We've had... Um, well, we're just, uh, we're just trying to navigate our way into this little coffee shop. This is going to be fun. So we just finished the first five-day class, ICA class in Beijing. Warren and I together, a bit of a change of format. Five-day class instead of the usual two-day classes. And they loved it. Huge selection of a really wide audience. We had high school teachers, instructors, A-list colorists, assistants, big mix of people. Very enthusiastic, that was the thing that I noticed most. How about you? Yeah, no, I think so as well. I, I was really impressed with their facilities and and uh, it was great, a great DI theater, and machines, kit, panels, monitors. They're really nice shop very well set up and very enthusiastic students we had uh, we had group cheers at the end of every session yeah and it's just great to have people that are just they just want to learn and they're keen to go back and put that into practice and which is good when you got enthusiastic people it certainly helps in uh, in the classroom 
it does, and, and it raises the energy level, and you just want to keep pushing, pushing, pushing new ideas. Yeah. Like, I remember coming to, to Beijing, and the facilities were, you know, quite old and quite... I mean, they always had some gear, but just the rooms and the places that we were in were always, you know, quite old and antiquated, I suppose you could say. But this place where we were was great, very modern. It was, and the uh, the attention to detail was impressive too. The equipment was modern. We had uh, two Canon HDR displays for the HDR class. Big panel wall, wall panel for the slide presentations. Banners, flags, um, supporting photo wall. So. Um, yeah, they really looked after us well. It was very impressive. This has to be one of the busiest cities, or certainly one of the biggest cities, I would think, with the amount of people here. Um, but it's just crazy with the traffic. We could, really had troubles just trying to get a taxi. It seemed really difficult to get a cab here. Lots of people were using the metro system that's very good. Yeah. All right, Kevin, let's see if we can get into this place and. Uh, See if we can get a drink. I don't think it will be beers though. It's a little bit early for me. What about you? Yeah, no, I'm uh, not ready for beers. We had a yeah. few of those last night. We did have a cheeky couple last night, a local uh, Chinese beer. So uh, we'll see you tonight. So we have uh, located ourselves to a little coffee shop that's not so far out of the uh, Forbidden City. There's a street called the 600-year-old street that's actually about six months old, I think. But it's a bit, it's a bit of a recreation. <laughs> it's a bit touristy, but it's okay. So It's got some old shops in it. It does, it does. So for those of you who don't uh, know you, Kevin, uh, some of you obviously know that Kevin did the International Colorist Academy. Uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to. Well, I started grading back in the 80s, actually. Um, I had a, an, a I had a, a print, an apprenticeship as such. Didn't last very long, about three months. <laughs> um, it's pretty hard to get into in those days for a couple of reasons. One was that nobody had ever heard of grading. Didn't even have colorists in those days. Most of them were engineers. Nobody had ever heard of that. Um, and secondly, even if you did want to do it. The rooms were costing around one or two million US dollars. So you had to find somebody that was prepared to let you loose in that room. And you had to hope that there was some downtime when you could be in there on your own. Anyway, so I started off, I did, I did music videos for about three years. It was fantastic. Could try all sorts of things. Nobody really minded you trying something new. Then a lot of those directors moved into commercials. So I got dragged into commercials. And um, I was still in London at that time. Got a little bit um, stale in London, I have to say. So I moved to Milano, Italy. Spent a year or so there. And that, uh, that was challenging. Socially, that was challenging. So I moved to Switzerland. Did some grading there, mostly TV and features. But this was all on um, video formats, of course. And then in the 90s, I, was, I started demonstrating for Da Vinci, and then they asked me to do some training for them 
and eventually that was taking up quite a lot of time and they they took me on as a full-time their first director of training I set up the Da Vinci Academy in those days it was 98 I worked there for six years wrote the manuals um, worked on new features stuff like that but then the software stuff was happening so was that that was before Resolve was it was yeah, Resolve so, thinking about at that time when you were still there or was it yeah no about halfway through so around 2000 2001 that was the time of what it was called um, what was it called in those days Colossus I think it was called which was a modification of the software that was written to do Lord of the Rings and which eventually became Luster so that caused quite big waves in our industry and of course Da Vinci came to me as director of training and they said you know what are you hearing should we be looking at software and I said yeah of course you should um, but they were a little bit slow on the uptake they were I wrote a white paper about what software color correction should have in it and do and they they didn't really want to hear that because they were a hardware company and ultimately of course um, that led to their demise and then Blackmagic bought them out and uh, really turned it around. I, I got the feeling that they never really thought that the, the $400,000 color correction was ever going to end. They'd always keep selling them and people would always want that really hero suite. Well, we did discuss it. I mean, I remember saying to them around 2001 that, uh, again, we had these board meetings and it was a very open company. Everybody could make suggestions. And at that time, I said to them, they said, who's, your, who's our biggest competitor? Well, in the hardware days, there was only really one competitor. That was Pandora. And, the, and there were stories about that. I mean, they said, for example, how do we get more sales from Pandora? And one of the guys said, well, it's a small company. You, you could buy them. Um, and they could have done in terms of sales they could have just bought the company shut it down they would have had 100% of the market but they decided quite wisely that competition was healthy and if there was no competition then the features would start to slow down so they were quite with it and my, my, my answer to the question was your biggest competitor is going to be Adobe of course I was like 15 years ahead of my time with that <laughs> but um, but no, I, you know, I, I said software is going to compete because software is going to do things that we can't do. Uh, and that became very obvious even in the early days of software color correction. Things like tracking. You couldn't do any tracking in a hardware color corrector because it never saw a picture. It only ever saw pixels coming down a pipe. So there was a lot of things that, that we could never have. Anyway, I, I um, felt that they were too slow and I felt that software was very important. So 2004, when Resolve was really still, I think you'd have to say, not even in beta, it was in alpha really. Um, and so I left and I, I didn't actually pick up Resolve. I went to, I looked at Baselight, I looked at Nucoda. I liked both of them, but the Nucoda team were very open and very interested in my ideas. So I worked with them um, in an unofficial capacity. Again, I did some demos for them and, and they listened to some of the ideas. That was an interesting time. I, for example, one of my suggestions to Nucoda was blend modes. You know, why don't you put Photoshop type blend modes in? And they were the first ones to do that. And now you see that in all the color characters. Yeah. So that was a good time. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to do when I left DaVinci was to work in features. Because in the hardware days, we didn't have the resolution to do that. 
so I kind of made a beeline um, for features. I did three or four in Australia, actually. That was where I got started on features. And uh, yeah, and then of course um, Black Magic got involved, and that was when you and I started talking about the International Colorist Academy and the fact that there was this wealth of knowledge from the film days and from Telecine that was lost on the new generation because now you most of the new users didn't have that apprenticeship, they didn't have that training and it would be a shame to lose all that knowledge that we'd acquired. So how did you yourself actually learn colouring? Well, I didn't, my intention wasn't really to be a colourist at first. I'm not really sure what I intended to be, but I, I was fascinated by movies. Um, I did a degree in photography, film, and television. I was working as a freelance photographer for a short period, and I took a job as an assistant in a studio at Moving Pictures in London. And that was where I saw my first telecine. And I was doing a lot of darkroom printing and stuff like that at home uh, for, the, for the photographic business. And when I saw this telecine and what you could do with it, electronic manipulation of images, no sticking your hands in cyanide and bromide and all these nasty chemicals, I thought that was it for me. And I had a word, I'd spoken to editors, for example, and they said, oh yeah, well, you're gonna be an apprentice for five years and then you'll be an assistant. And then, you know, five years later, you might get some jobs. And I'm thinking, well, I was, always, I was already in my 20s. You know, I thought the world was gonna end in 10 years. So I asked the same question of the Telecine guy, pretty cool guy, um, still still rating, I think, Clive Christopher, you probably know. And I said, um, what does it take to be a colorist? And he said, well, you know, you have to be an assistant. Maybe after six months or so, you'll be a, you'll be let loose with some, you know, smaller budget work or you'll, you'll copy grades and stuff. I didn't actually get a job as a colorist at Moving Pictures. Um, I got a job with a company called Telecine Limited. I did a lot of medical films. News footage, they had a contract with ITN, for example. And, um, and so I learned under, they had one senior colorist, um, great, great colorist, although he didn't stay in the industry, but it was really good. He had a lot of time for me, and uh, I was assisting him for three months, and then somebody came in with a music video, which he didn't have time to do. And I rather foolishly said, uh, I'll have a go. And I did. Um, so that was, I'd only been there three months. And that was it. I never looked back. After about six months, I was doing three or four music videos a day. And that went on for two or three years until the Ursa came out. And then I jumped ships to get on um, the latest equipment. And that, that was really how I ran my career in those days. Every time there was a new feature, if the company I was at didn't upgrade to it, I looked for a job with a company that got the latest and greatest. Yeah, I was a bit similar in a way, I suppose. I, I quite like moving around. I, never, I sort of got sticky feet, I think, if I sat somewhere too long. Yeah. And I worked with Clive as well at, at SVC. He gave me a job there. So it's a small world, isn't it? Well, it is. Even today, when there's millions of you know people out there with the colorist tag on the, on the back, we still, this is still a very close community, and we see that in the mixes, don't we? I think, I think it is. I think it is a very close community and social community, and people are happy to share things. And I suppose it's still quite small if you compare it to editors or DPs. It's still pretty small. 
So one of the things I want to talk about, obviously through the, the ICA, we get lots of people asking, how can I get into color correction or how can I learn? So we want to sort of maybe discuss the different ways that you can uh, maybe get into coloring as an occupation or maybe a sideline occupation. So I suppose the, like we just mentioned, the number one, if you can get it, is to be a mentor with somebody or try and get a job, which is harder because there's a lot less staff jobs now. There, well, there's two things. There's a lot less staff jobs and there's a lot fewer situations or people who are prepared to have an assistant I mean, the industry's really changed um, so I think it's pretty hard to go that route now and also the you know the the mentors are few and far between as well a lot of colorists are very protective they're in very competitive markets they don't really want to be passing all their secrets on to somebody who you know like us is going to jump ship once they once they picked up enough yeah it's if it, i mean people come and ask me if they can work but i don't have enough work i'm probably half grading half teaching but i never really know when i'm going to be there and if i'm going to be on a job is it the sort of job you can take someone in that can shadow you so it's a hard thing yeah uh, for people reaching out so uh, do you know anywhere you can go and get classroom training do you know anyone who does that um, well, in terms of, uh... Uh, that's just a joke. I mean, we haven't started this podcast just so we can flog our own classes. Uh, we're we're going to talk generally. So, so the second idea, I suppose, would be to to take a classroom class. I mean, I've sat in them before. I actually sat in one of your classes, one of your Da Vinci classes in Did LA. You? Yeah. Oh, the hardware classes. One of the big classes. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yes. So, and I've done them, and I've done things at Kodak, and I've always tried to, to go on class. Probably why we sort of got into this. So what do you think the benefits are of classroom? Um, I think classroom training is fantastic. I really do. And I'm not just saying that, obviously, because I've got a vested interest in it. But um, so the benefits of classroom training, first of all, you're out of your environment. It's very difficult to learn and really study something if you're trying to fit it in between jobs or um, you know, you're on call, somebody's chasing you. There's going to be a lot of distractions. So in classroom training, your focus for that two days, three days, five days, whatever it is, yeah. you're totally focused and immersed in the art. Um, and that's, that's a very um, accelerated learning curve. Um, secondly, you're with a bunch of like-minded people and the networking in these classes cannot be underestimated. Every class that I've been in and I've, and I've given, the class always stays together, it stays in touch afterwards. Especially now with you know WeChat and uh, WhatsApp and, and these various social apps, Facebook groups, they, they tend to stick together and they use each other as a resource. Yeah. And then the, the third real benefit, I think, of classroom training is you've got one-on-one -on -one time, not just with the instructor, but with all the other people in there. So most of these rooms, if you add up all the years of experience in the room, you know, you've got more than 100 years of experience and you can see problems that you have that nobody else has. You can see the problems that everybody has. You can see problems that have been solved. Um, and I always say to people, I mean, it's never happened yet, thank God, but I always say to people, even if you learn nothing in the class, you go away with the confidence that you know as much as anybody else anywhere in the world. Exactly. I, what I liked about this class that we just did here in, in Beijing was 
I got the people to bring up like just a minute section of what they've been doing. So when they do their intros, and this is obviously in a more advanced class than our beginners, and there was some really cool stuff. And it, it gives the chance to go, yeah, I've worked on this commercial, there were some big features, and you're surprised at the different levels. There was some big stuff, and it, that's really good. And then you can see the other students sort of gathering around going, oh, I know that. Oh, you worked on that. And immediately there's these conversations that sort of kick in. It's, I mean, every single time you always get surprised. Somebody always comes up with something you think, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that, but that really works. So I'll, I'll keep that, you know, yeah. at the back of the mind. That'll come in useful one day. Yeah. And I suppose the... The third way would be online training, which can be two ways. It can be, you know, you buy your training like the FX PhD thing I've done for a long time. It could be subscription like the Mixing Light Boys do, where you pay your monthly money and you get your movies, and which is there are they are great resources as well. And then I suppose thirdly is the the one-on-one -on -one consulting. Have you done much of that? You think there's a market there? Other, well, it's definitely a market. In fact, I think my next job is a one-on-one is -on -one online training um, across the world using Skype, shared desktops. In theory, we could also do remote control, but I've never really done that. Um, it's enough for them to share the desktop and then they can follow along. So it's very much like a classroom training. More focused, obviously, because you're the only person involved and that can be very successful. Usually those people have very specific um, points of interest that they want to go through. But sometimes it's a job, it's like they've got their first big commercial yeah. and they will just want you to critique and look at what they've done before they submit it for approval. So that's a very useful way of working and it can be quite cost effective and minimal disruption. Yeah, I think, I think that's growing. And obviously people say, oh, well, there's no classrooms near me. I can't afford a classroom. I mean, it's not cheap. And if you're doing the online training, I think what you've really got to do is turn everything. You've got to treat that like a job or you're going to a class. Because if you've got distractions and you've got emails and Facebook notifications coming up, it's too easy to do something else and not focus. Yeah, agreed. I mean, all the people I've worked with, you know, they pay money for this. They don't want to waste, fritter away the hour or two hours that they've booked. No. So they generally go into a quiet room yeah. and they shut the door and uh, they do treat it like that. Yeah. And, you know, everyone learns different. Some people say, oh, I, you know, I certainly can't read a manual. Uh, that annoys me a little bit. People say, oh, I never read the manual, I work it out. And then two minutes later, they're pointing to some silly comment on Facebook asking how to do something simple. Uh, and I think we have to talk about that, don't we? I mean, for, there's a lot of free information out there. Yeah. Some of it's very good. Yeah. Some of it is just wrong. I think the trick is to use reliable sources sources that you know you can trust and ideally find the sort of tutorials where there's comments and feedback because um, it's important to be able to ask questions yeah and if you're doing online training then you're looking at the movies set it down like a set lesson and allow yourself then half an hour probably to go over that lesson yes and practice it and practice then and the next day, do something else, practice something else, go for it that way. What about books and 
manuals and that way? Well, manuals, of course, very important. It's hard to read all the way through a manual, but I've done a few of them. It, it's um, it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. There's always a little surprise in there, something you, you wouldn't normally know that it does that could save you some time later. Um, and then there's a few books. There's not that many books at the moment. I, I'm involved with a publisher, actually, right now, and um, I can tell you that there are several books on the way, so that's that's good news. I think the problem in the past was it wasn't a big enough community and it's a very specialized niche area so it was difficult to really justify publishing something but um, one of the one of the good things that Resolvers brought to us is a big enough market to support that type of industry so there's some good books coming along a variety from technique to looks and uh, general stuff and I always um, I love reading books I and mean, that's something you, that's quite relaxing isn't it that yes. you can do it's a little bit, little bit geeky that you're, you know, you're, you're never walking away from the job. But I think colorists never do. You know, they'll be walking down the street and they say, oh, you know, I know guys that say, oh, orange and teal, orange and teal. Or, or they're walking down the street and they're taking reference photographs. Well, that's, that's all part of your makeup of a colorist, isn't it? All the things that you see and you take in, all those experiences is something that you could put into a grade. Absolutely. I think without real-world references we're all lost you know the, the art is not an art and that's what I like about it is that you can contribute all your experience and your thoughts and your ideas into the grade and enhance somebody else's work with those ideas so for those of you who don't know CSI is Colorist Society International and that's a society aiming to get more recognition for colorists isn't it and trying to you know maybe get colorists moved up the order on on credit rollers and things yes it's um it's a 501c registered company which means it is a legally bound not-for-profit organization and the terms of those organizations are that they must benefit the industry not just the members um, but obviously we need members so that we can finance it and run it and so that we can lobby. One, I think one of the reasons why colorists don't get better credits because nobody really doubts the contribution they make, but they're not represented. And it's very hard even for quite a well-known individual to lobby for a change in the industry. Colorist Society's already had some successes with that and we, we hope to take that further. But just having a group that um, organizations can come to has made huge changes. One of the biggest sort of unexpected areas that we've had a, um, an input is people getting visas, people getting work visas. Because now there's an organization that governments can come to and say, is this person really a respected colorist? And because we do background checks and we keep written certification from employers, from clients, from colorists that have worked with them or maybe trained them. We have a paper trail and so we can say hand on heart, yes, this person is a professional colorist and is at the top of his game. So visas has, has been a thing. And then there's some fun stuff. So we, we've just uh, had our first t-shirt competition. So um, in the coming months, we will be printing up those t-shirts. 
and um, and again it's an awareness thing they're, they're very elegant that the the members voted on which design they liked the best and then there's comments where we might modify the designs a little bit um, but it's a very elegant sort of something you could be proud of wearing and um, and again that's just putting the word out people are going to say oh color society what's that who you know what do you do and so if somebody is listening and go well i like the sound of that how do i join what do i need what is that um, how do you join simplest way is to go to colorsociety.com there's a join us page and fill in a form there's several ca categories of membership there's the associates which is a student category which anybody can just sign up um, pay the dues and be a member of there's alliance which is those people who are not full-time colorists but who either do a bit of coloring or have an interest in working with colorists like a DP or like a DP or somebody like that some some of the editors um, and again that's a just sign up and, and join and that gives you access to the discounts gives you access to the forums and then there's the full members category so that's the one that has to be validated and qualified you can do it in one of two ways if you know two existing members they can sponsor you but I'll just give a little word of warning here you can't just contact a couple of guys that you've seen on a chat room the the members have to actually have worked with you and know that you've been a full-time colorist for three or more years and when we take references from them we're very specific and, and the the justification is would you be prepared to pass one of your clients over to this guy and if you can't answer that then they can't they can't support you and they stick to it because the strength of the society is only as good as the reputation that its members have so we so we do that now of course not everybody knows somebody in the society and we don't want it to be exclusive there was a lot of pressure to make it exclusive but that wasn't our goal so if you don't know anybody you need a two letters of reference has to be on written hand uh, written headed paper with a signature so an email is not enough because <clears throat> we need it on record and that can be from an employer that can be from a client um, sometimes it's from a business bureau if you have your own facility for example we just need to establish beyond doubt that you've been working full-time as a colorist um, for three or more years and it's open to you know features colorists commercial colorists but also DITs we have a strong representation amongst the restoration community um, so it's color related because what we're trying to do is lobby for a new category on IMDB. IMDB recognizes Color Society, but we would like to not be part of editorial. We would like to be part of the colorist group. Cool. All right, great. Well, uh, thanks a lot for chatting, Kevin, and uh, good luck with uh, CSI, ICA training, wherever that might be in the world. It's all over the world. Enjoy, all over the world. Enjoy the heat. I understand you got a few days in Beijing now. Just a bit yes, of I've been here a few times, but I've never actually seen anything. So um, I'm spending a couple of days to see the Great Wall and the Forbidden City. 
and, uh, and do some writing. That's, that's, the, that's my justification. All right, fantastic. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please tune in next month for another edition. If you have enjoyed the pod, then please leave feedback on iTunes or iColorist.com. Who would you like to see featured on the next Color Tour podcast? You can contact me at Color Tour Pod on Twitter.